Before we get into today's episode, I just wanted to let you know that I am looking for 50 people with Hashimoto's. If you have been diagnosed in the last 10 years and you feel lost or confused about exactly what to do, then I want to invite you to join me for a free training call on Thursday, May 16th at 8.30 p.m. Eastern, where I will show you how to support your thyroid for your thyroid type and your specific Hashimoto's triggers. You will also find out how to lower your thyroid antibodies and how to get to the bottom of all of your thyroid symptoms, the weight gain, the fatigue, the brain fog, the inflammation, the hair loss. Please go to inatoppler.com slash Zoom call to register, and I will send you all of the call details. I only have room for 50 people, so please be sure that you register at inatoppler.com slash Zoom call and get your spot right now. Meet Amanda. She has trouble concentrating. She can't remember things, can't keep tasks straight, and starts many tasks but can't seem to finish any of them. In fact, the more she tries to concentrate, the more spacey she feels, and she feels like she's just running around in circles, around and around. What is so interesting is that her son Logan can't seem to sit still at school or properly complete his homework in any of his subjects, and his teacher recommended that he get evaluated. Amanda is hesitant to take him to the doctor about it because she knows they're going to recommend medication and she didn't know how she felt about it just yet. She saw so much of herself in him and wondered if this is something that's genetic and if something could be done to support this naturally for both of them. Every year, thousands of people are told there's no explanation for their health concerns and no way to fix them. They feel frustrated, undermined, and lost. I know because that was me before I figured out the actual causes and reclaimed my health. Now I help others do the same. I'm Ina Toppler and this is Health Mystery Solved. We just heard about Amanda's concentration issues as well as some of the things that her son has been going through. To talk more about this, I am bringing back Dr. Darren Ingalls. I first interviewed Dr. Ingalls on my Overcoming Hashimoto Summit, and then this podcast in episode 18, where we talked about Lyme disease. However, Lyme disease is only one of his specialties. He focuses on environmental medicine with special emphasis on not just Lyme, but also MS, autism, pediatric acute onset neuropsychiatric syndrome, which is PANS or PANDAS, and chronic immune dysfunction, including allergies, asthma, recurrent and persistent infections, and other genetic or acquired immune problems. Dr. Ingalls, welcome back. Oh, thank you so much for having me back. It's great to have you again. And I'm excited to pick your brain about ADD because this, like so many other conditions, can be misunderstood. And I also find that it's one of those things that can be misdiagnosed, but also in some situations overdiagnosed. And then the conventional treatments can be quite generic. And like most things, they don't get to the root. So can you tell us first to start, just so that everyone's on the same page, what exactly is ADD and also ADHD. Sure. Well, ADD, attention deficit disorder, or ADHD is attention deficit and hyperactivity disorder. Really sort of the difference between the two is that hyperactivity component. But the thing that's common between both is just that 
that difficulty of staying focused, staying on task, easily distracted, difficulty following directions, you know, general forgetfulness, you know, you ask a child to do something and two seconds later, they completely forgot that you asked them to do anything. You know, they don't pay attention to details. Organization gets to be very complicated and often, you know, people with AD are very disorganized and just that short attention span. So it's sort of a global thing where, you know, the ability to stay on task, complete the task as asked is really compromised. And again, you know, we, we sort of think of it being really a problem in children. And I think that comp- the, that's probably the bulk of the folks out there dealing with ADD or ADHD, but you know, we see it in adults as well. So it really isn't confined to children only. I'm so glad you're mentioning that because yeah, so many people think it's kids, but oftentimes the adults are probably the ones that had it as kids and maybe it wasn't diagnosed and skipped over. And if nothing is done, they still have issues, right? Yeah. You know, it, yeah, I mean, I'm glad you mentioned that. I mean, I, I think, you know, I'm a kid that grew up in the seventies and eighties and uh, gosh, I don't remember anybody who was diagnosed with ADD or ADHD and certainly nobody was ever on medication. I think, especially as a boy, it was kind of chalked up. You're a boy being a boy. And so being disruptive in class and not turning in your homework, you know, it was almost, I hate to say expected, but it wasn't, that wasn't uncommon. But I think, you know, as the time has gone on, we've seen more of an environmental impact on kids these days. I think kids are exposed to so many more things than we had exposure to, at least when I was growing up, that probably has a negative impact on their ability to, you know, really sit down, particularly in school and focus and do homework and complete assignments. But I think there's been a big change over the last several decades on how kids have been impacted by it. And I think part of it too is there is a greater awareness. Kids are getting diagnosed. I'm sure there were kids back in the day that would have been given this label had it been more prominent. But uh, I think it's also a shift in that, you know, we are seeing more kids in particular that are struggling with these problems. Yeah, no, that's a good point because there are so many different environmental things. I mean, I guess it's almost um, similar in terms of autism. You know, we hear so much more about it now. And is it that it didn't exist, you know, 50 years ago or 40 years ago when we were growing up? Is it that it wasn't diagnosed, but it's like you said, I think there are just so many environmental triggers. And so there is more of it now. Yeah. I I think like autism, you know, the rates have definitely gone up and I I don't think it's just an issue that we really didn't identify it. I mean, again, we all knew that one kid in class that was always kind of disruptive and, and teacher had to keep, you know, getting them in line, but it was that one kid, you know, it wasn't a classroom full of kids. And now we're seeing, you know, the percentage of children that have been giving these diagnoses has gone up exponentially, particularly in the last 20, 30 years. So, you know, we're, it, it, I don't think it's just a function that we're better at identifying and diagnosing it. I think we are legitimately seeing, you know, more kids being impacted by it. So if someone is thinking that they or their child may have ADD, you mentioned a couple of signs like trouble concentrating, um, staying on task. Now, is this going to be similar for both kids and adults? Or are there certain things you're seeing in terms of signs that's going to be a little different between kids and adults? Yeah, I think with adults, I see more of that ADD part without the hyperactivity. It's a little bit more unusual to see the adult who, you know, has that hyperactivity component where, you know, they just literally can't sit still, have to keep getting up and down out of their chair or off the couch or wherever they are. And they kind of, you know, keep be flitting about where it's more of what I hear from adults is that they can't focus, they can't concentrate, they're not getting their work done, their boss is on their back because you know, the assignment was due yesterday and they, they just couldn't get finished with it. 
And I, I think it's important to distinguish, you know, in the diagnosis because, you know, people who have these legitimate problems, you know, it's, it's everything. It's, it's, it's not just one particular thing in their life that they struggle with. You know, they forget where they put their car keys. They can't remember meeting someone they met two days ago. You know, we'll see this in every aspect of the life. And I think this becomes important with children because often teachers are the ones, you know, pointing out to parents like, hey, I think your kid's got ADD based on their behavior in class. But then we'll hear about the child that can sit down with their video game for hours and have no problem doing that. So, you know, in some cases, it may be a function of interest. You know, uh, if there's a child who just isn't interested in doing math, they hate it. <laughs> you know, they say, oh, my kid's got ADD. They can't do their math homework. But what about their other subjects? Oh, yeah, no, they can do that. They can read. They can do that. That's fine. Well, I don't think that's really ADD or ADHD. You know, when it's really part of the problem, we'll see it across the board in every aspect of the life. But for the adults, you know, differentiating from children, it's really more of that, that easily distractible, difficulty staying on task. And again, we rarely see that hyperactivity component. Got it. Now, in terms of figuring out if someone does have it, what are some tests that are available conventionally, if there's any? Yeah, I mean, there's. I don't think there's a lot of great uh, tests. There are certain scales, uh, certain tests that some psychologists will do. It really is a clinical diagnosis. If you go into the DSM-5, it's really of, do you have this collection of symptoms? And if you do, you kind of fall under that umbrella of ADD or ADHD. And again, there is a spectrum of, you know, how it impacts people. So not everybody's going to have every single symptom, uh, but there is that red line that kind of runs through everybody who has this condition, again, with that sort of easily distracted difficulty following through on task and just kind of forgetting things. So when we hear about that hallmark of symptoms, most uh, doctors, psychiatrists, psychologists, based on the symptoms alone, will make that diagnosis. And so you mentioned that overall, there's a lot more cases now, and a lot has to do with what's happening, our environment, what we're exposed to. Let's talk about that. What are some of the factors that you think are contributing to such an increase in this? Well, I think probably the biggest impact I'm seeing is with diet. You know, I think if you look at the way children eat today, even relative again to 20 or 30 years ago, and we could even compare U.S. children with, you know, European children because the diets are quite different. I think the introduction of corn syrup, dyes, you know, fillers, preservatives, all these different chemicals in food that aren't really food. Uh, have an impact on children's brains. And, you know, we've got now several studies showing the impact of how diet influences, you know, the gut and ultimately the brain and behavior. And just in my clinical practice, I see often if we clean up the diet, get rid of junk food and processed food, get rid of all the dyes, you know, we'll see children have improvements in their focus and concentration and their behavior. So I think diet's a big part of it. And again, when I, I, I've traveled a lot to Europe and I look at what European children eat and it's very different than what you U.S. children eat. So I think, you know, we have to look at, you know, what we're feeding our kids. Uh, that includes what's at home, what's in school, what's at their friend's house, because that does have a cumulative effect on how it can impact their gut and their brain. So diet is, is, is a big, big part of it. And I think there's all those other external, you know, toxins in the environment. You know, we just happen to live in a more toxic world. And that's, you know, pesticides and herbicides and pollutants and volatile organic compounds and petrochemicals. And, you know, there's this long-term additive cumulative effect. And I think what's really interesting is when you look at some of the research on how we get exposed to different toxins, we're now seeing that there's a generational effect. 
So kids today are not just impacted by what they're exposed to, but they're the result of what their parents and even their grandparents were exposed to. So there is a passing down of some of these toxins uh, from generation to generation. And so, you know, as we look at the kids today in particular and what they're exposed to, we always have to take into consideration what the parents and grandparents were exposed to. So for people, you know, who may have grown up in a farm community where there's heavy pesticide use, or maybe, you know, your grandfather worked in a coal mine or in a plant where he had a lot of exposure, you know, it's at least possible that some of that is impacting, you know, the child today. So I, I think it gets to be horribly complex as we're trying to tease through, you know, what are all these different exposures? And in some cases, these are things we can control like diet. And in other cases, it's more difficult to control because if it's something in the air that you're not aware of, you may not know that there are the exposures going on. So, you know, I think we all uh, kind of sit back and look at the, the global scale of everything that someone who's got ADD is exposed to and, you know, try and control as much of that environment as possible to make it as clean as possible so that ultimately we can help, you know, the brain function better. And it's true. I mean, we can't obviously control everything. I always tell people, it's like, if you have an overflowing bucket, let's see what's in the bucket. Let's take out as much as we can. Even if we only get the bucket halfway down, there's still that much more room left. So the body can function better. Right. And, and we know that that bucket to a certain degree is genetic. You know, you, some people are born with a huge bucket and some people are born with a shot glass. And you're right, when it overflows, that's when the symptoms come out. So in addition to all the environmental exposures, we are dealing to a certain degree with, you know, both genetic and epigenetic expression of these different genes. And some people are really good detoxifiers and some people are very poor detoxifiers. And we know as a whole that the people who are slow or poor detoxifiers, little bits of different, you know, chemicals, toxins, foods can have a much greater impact on them than other people. So, you know, it's like I said, it gets to be a bit complicated as we're trying to look at the uh, overall impact of all these things that expose it. But, you know, with all the, the new research coming on on genetics, I think it's just fascinating. And we're just learning so much more about how your liver detoxifies, your kidneys detoxify, and all these different enzymes that are involved in those pathways. And I think as that research continues to grow, you know, we'll learn about better interventions to help improve those pathways function better. So let's talk about some of the testing for these things. I know that with ADD specifically, there's not many tests in terms of determination. It's more some of these questionnaires and symptoms. But once someone has the diagnosis, you know, whether it's a child or an adult, there are, of course, so many things that we could do more on an integrative basis to really get to the root of it. So what are some tests that you find helpful so that we can get to the bottom of it? Because I'm assuming with a lot of the people that you're seeing, you know, it's not that everyone necessarily has an issue with detox or everyone has an issue with methylation. I mean, possibly, right? But I'm assuming it's probably that there's a few factors that play a role in certain people versus others. Yeah. You know, there's there's a lot of different tests that uh, we'll really use depending on the person, their symptoms and so forth. But again, I think looking at nutritional aspects. So sometimes we are measuring new, different nutrients. You know, we know that if you're deficient in vitamin B6 and magnesium, that's going to impact your cognitive function. That's going to impact your mood and behavior. And so we can do that through a simple blood test. 
Sometimes we see people that have chronic gastrointestinal problems, and we know that there's such a strong relationship between the gut and the brain. You know, doing a stool test may be helpful to identify if there's any imbalance of normal bacteria, if there's an overgrowth of yeast, or maybe a parasite. You know, we can look at inflammatory markers. So that gives us a lot of insight into the function of the gut. Because typically, you go to a gastroenterologist, you know, they're looking for food poisoning or they're looking for tumors, you know, something that's sort of outside of the, uh, the functional aspect that we would be interested in. And we can do things like organic acid testing, which is a urine test. And I, I like organic acid testing because it's easy to collect and it gives us very broad information about what your body's doing metabolically. So, you know, is there a problem with your neurotransmitters? Is there a problem, again, with, you know, any kind of microbial overgrowth? Are there certain nutritional deficiencies? So we can get a lot of useful information uh, from a test like that. And, and then, again, sometimes we dive even deeper and look at very specifically to food reactions. You know, food allergies are, are, are not as common. A true food allergy, you know, if a kid eats a peanut and their face swells and they can't breathe, you know, they're allergic to peanuts. But if they eat, you know, something with corn in it, and a day or two later, they start having all these behavior problems and they can't focus. These delayed reactions to food can be very challenging for parents to identify or for anybody for that matter. So sometimes we'll dig deeper and we'll do some sort of food sensitivity assessment to try and help, you know, figure out if there's something in their diet that they're eating that might actually be working against them. So, you know, this is where, you know, we have the ability to really tailor this to the individual, you know, find out specifically, you know, what we think might be these underlying issues. Uh, but fortunately, you know, we do have this, you know, litany of uh, functional testing available that we can help really pinpoint where the problems might be stemming from. It, thank goodness, right, that we have these tests. And you know, a lot of the people that listen to the show are familiar with some of the tests. And a lot of them have had them uh, run those tests. A lot of them, you know, are looking into doing them. And there's just so much information that we can gather from them. And I just wanted to back up a little bit and get a little bit more in depth um, with some of the things that you mentioned. So first, when you mentioned testing for B6 and magnesium, and you said you do a through a blood test, are you typically looking at like a red blood cell uh, magnesium or how do you usually do it? Yeah, so there are a few different labs that do various types of testing. You know, we know that in blood itself through your serum testing, you know, nutrient levels can fluctuate pretty wildly. So some things like vitamin D, I think, are pretty reliable if you're just doing it through a straight blood test. Minerals, you know, red blood cell analyses is probably a better reflection of what's actually in tissue since red blood cells stay in your blood longer than just the water component. So yeah, for, for magnesium, we'll typically look at a red blood cell magnesium. But for a lot of the water-soluble vitamins, you know, as long as someone's not taking a supplement that might impact those levels, you know, measuring vitamin B12, vitamin B6, it's not perfect, but it's, you know, insurance pays for it. Every reference lab in the world does it. And for someone who's got a frank deficiency, we can usually pick that up. But I do like, you know, the red blood cell test to get a little bit deeper. So, you know, some of the labs we use, like, you know, SpectraCell and Doctors Data and so forth, offer some sort of, you know, a blood cell analysis looking at, you know, either vitamin or mineral levels that will give us a better idea of probably what's in tissue. And then for GI tests, and I agree with you 100%, I mean, the gut has so much to do with what's happening really everywhere, but especially the brain. I'm wondering if you have found any patterns, because I know you're seeing so many people with ADD and ADHD. Are there certain uh, bacteria, parasites, or maybe yeasts that you notice more with that population? Just curious. 
Well, I think yeast overgrowth tends to be a common problem. I, I won't say it's everybody, but you know, yeast has that capacity that when it overgrows, and again, this is part of your normal flora. So to have yeast in your gut is normal. That by itself isn't a problem. But if again, if it overgrows, it can start to create, you know, brain effects, whether it's brain fog, uh, you know, mood changes, sleep disturbances, and so forth. So yeast overgrowth, I'd say, is fairly common. And sometimes it is just overgrowth of other bacteria. And again, these aren't really pathogenic bacteria. These are things that are part of your normal flora. But for whatever reason, if they tend to overgrow and dominate the gut, that's where we start to see some of these symptoms. So this is where, again, stool testing, I think, can be really helpful to pinpoint. Is something out of balance? Do you have enough of the right friendly bacteria to work with you? You know, Because if you've got overgrowth, you definitely want to get that back in to check. So make sure, you know, you're, you're, you know, stool testing, again, you know, I don't think there's anything out there yet that really reflects the entirety of your gut microbiome. I mean, there are literally, right. you know, thousands of organisms and species. And you know, we've got newer labs out there like, you know, Viome that's sort of doing a genetic analysis of all the different strains of bacteria and viruses. But it's so new, we don't really know what to do with that information yet. I'm not sure we really know what a normal gut microbiome should look like. You know, trying to find anyone, certainly in the U.S., that's never been on antibiotics, that's only eaten organic, fresh food their whole life. I mean, what is a normal gut? So I think, you know, we're, we're still in those early stages of trying to determine what that looks like. And hopefully as time goes on and we learn more about it, we'll be able to have better interventions on getting the gut you know, healthier again, particularly for people who may have been on, you know, lots of courses of antibiotics and disrupted that microbiome. But in the meantime, you know, this is kind of what we have. We take the information and I think at least gives us, again, a relatively broad overview of what's going on with the gut. And for people who have a lot of GI issues, you know, typically we will find something on these stool tests that's actionable, that we can actually, you know, use some sort of therapy to intervene and get the gut healthier. And what are some of your favorite things to use to intervene? I mean, obviously, I understand that would depend on what they have, but do you typically use herbals and botanicals or do you use medications sometimes if needed? Yeah, I mean, I, I tend to use you know, botanicals. I mean, sometimes people just need more probiotics to balance out their gut flora. If someone has an overgrowth of a bacteria or yeast, uh, there's a lot of herbs at our disposal that work quite well and they have less negative impact than antibiotics. Uh, so we don't kill off all the friendly bacteria. You know, plants tend to have, you know, multiple constituents in it that do more than one thing. So, you know, not only do they help potentially kill off an organism that we need to get under control, but they're anti-inflammatory. They might be soothing to the mucous membrane. They help support your immune system. So, you know, we get a lot of different activities when we use plants. And then in other cases, it's using certain nutrients that we know, I mean, something like glutamine that we know feeds the small intestine or butyrate that feeds the large intestine. So if we see evidence that they need that nutritional support to, uh, you know, get the tissue functioning better, you know, we can use those nutrients as well. Mm -hmm. And what tests would show that, that they would need more of the tissue support? Would that be something you're looking in a stool test or is there another test for that? Yeah, yeah, typically on a stool test because, you know, they do measure for inflammatory markers. They do measure like flat out butyrate. Uh, we know that, you know, people who are prone to ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease tend to have very low butyrate. So sometimes, you know, adding butyrate can help with inflammatory bowel disease. So again, the fact that they measure these directly in the stool can be quite, quite helpful. What about in terms of foods? Are you doing food sensitivity testing or are you having people try an elimination diet to see what 
they may be reacting to? You know, I used to do elimination diets. Uh, I mean, Alan Gavey, uh, who's a medical doctor, who's, I think, one of the foremost experts in nutrition. He was my nutrition teacher when I was in medical school, and he was a big proponent of elimination diets. And they, they're very helpful. I think the challenge with elimination diets for some people is knowing exactly what to eliminate. You tend to eliminate, you know, sort of the top foods that tend to cause problems for most people. But if you're someone who has a sensitivity to a food that might not be as common, it'd be easy to miss that. And then once you went through the elimination phase and then challenge, you know, sometimes it was obvious that people had a problem, sometimes it wasn't. So, uh, and of course, this takes the course over, you know, three, four, five weeks. And uh, I found uh, that if we can just test people directly, find out exactly what the problem is, it just cuts to the chase. Most people are happy to do it that way. That way they don't have to spend weeks really trying to figure out what's bothering them. And again, I, I think food's complex and there's probably no one way that we're going to pick up on all reactions to food because you can again have true food allergies. You can have food intolerances, something like you know lactose intolerant or gluten intolerance. These are enzyme problems. These aren't really immune problems. I mean, there's an immune thing that can happen afterwards, but the primary problem is that your gut just doesn't break down these foods appropriately and those partially digested food products can trigger inflammation in the gut. So, and then you can have food sensitivities, which are some element of probably a delayed reaction to food. So no matter what testing you do out there, you know, just be aware that I don't know of any one test that measures all the possible reactions you can have. And sometimes you're doing, you know, one, two, three different types of tests to really pick up on, you know, what's going on with, you know, food in the gut. But, you know, in our practice, you know, we do a combination of things. You know, we do skin testing, we do uh, skin patch testing, we do elimination diets currently, uh, we do some IgG testing, we do some other esoteric types of testing. So uh, it's just a function of, you know, what we think suits the individual best. And are there labs that you like better for um, these sensitivities and intolerances only because like you said, there are so many tests and so many labs and you know everyone claims that theirs is going to be the best, but there's so many different technologies out there. Yeah, we do a lot of it in-house just because we have the capacity to test people directly in our office. So we do mostly in-house, but occasionally we will send out to like US biotech for uh, testing. Sometimes actually I'm finding even a lot of the big reference labs now are doing IgG food testing. So we don't necessarily have to go out to a specialty lab anymore because I've seen even labs like Quest and LabCorp will do that. So uh, again, insurance pays and sometimes it's just easier for people to do it that way. And in terms of food reactions, obviously everyone is very different, but are you seeing any common themes? Like, are you seeing gluten with more people that have ADD or any other foods? No, it really varies across the board. I mean, it's it's probably a lot of the common foods that we see as sensitivities. Sometimes it's dairy, sometimes it's wheat, sometimes it's corn, sometimes it's eggs. Uh, it, it really does depend on the person. And, and more often than not, it's not just a food. It is multiple foods. And again, it's the accumulation of all those foods. And what I find interesting in children's, but particularly is that, you know, kids tend to crave the foods they're sensitive to. And you'll hear about these kids that you know, only eat four or five foods. And then we'll test them. We find out they're sensitive to all four or five foods. I'm like, well, that kind of makes sense in a way. I think it's a little bit akin to drug addiction. You know, there's something when they eat the food, their brain gets that hit, gets that dopamine hit, and they they feel good. But in that, it also kind of dysregulates the brain, and now they have a hard time focusing and concentrating. I mean, I would say in children in particular, corn is probably the one I've seen the most. 
Uh, and because corn syrup, corn starch got introduced in the food supply in the early 70s, and we all thought sugar was evil. And so all these food manufacturers started replacing cane sugar with corn syrup or some derivative of it. And for whatever reason, that really seems to disrupt kids' brains. Uh, I see it less in adults. With adults, it's a little bit broader. But uh, I, you know, if I have a child come in that's got any kind of attention problem, uh, even before we do testing, I'll say, look, just go through, eliminate corn out of the diet. Usually we do gluten-free, dairy-free as well because these tend to be very common. And it's amazing just by eliminating those three foods, how many people improve without even necessarily going deeper and figuring out if there's other foods that bother them. Yeah, no, I've seen that as well. It really is amazing. Now, what about in terms of detoxification? You've mentioned that that is such an important factor in a lot of these more chronic types of conditions. So how would someone know if they have issues with detoxification? Are there certain signs and symptoms and are there integrative tests that you like to look at when testing for this? Yeah, well, detoxification, because it involves so many different metabolic pathways, again, there's not really a test that measures all of it. Uh, I know that some labs will do like a uh, a detox profile where basically you take, you know, caffeine and, uh, and acetaminophen, Tylenol, and measure how your body clears it. I don't think too many of us do that just because, you know, we don't like giving people Tylenol. <laughs> but, <laughs> Correct. you know, I, I think a lot of it is sort of based on clinical history, too. You know, when you hear about people that get small amounts of substances, whether it's medication or... Uh, for adults, particularly with coffee, I mean, I think for adults, coffee is a great litmus test. There's the person that can drink two sips of coffee and they get heart palpitations and shaking and they really feel the effects of it. You know, that sort of tells me that you're a pretty slow detoxifier because that little bit of caffeine had such a profound impact. And there's other people that can drink a pot of coffee and they feel fine. And that tells me they're probably a very rapid metabolizer and therefore things go through pretty quickly. Uh, in children, it's a little bit harder to determine that. But again, I have some parents will tell me, oh, yeah, I give them a little bit of medication or a little bit of whatever. And it really seems to impact them in a big way. So without doing really more sophisticated testing, you know, that gives us a pretty good idea about how well they detoxify. You know, I know sort of the popular thing now is to do SNP testing. These are single nucleotide polymorphisms. They're individual mutations that actually happen to everybody. Uh, but if it impacts certain enzymes in the detox pathways, I think MTHFR is the one that everyone talks about. Uh, is Again, it's one enzyme and a multitude of enzymes that are involved in detoxification. But it is possible that if there's a genetic impairment in that pathway, your capacity to process things may be impaired. The problem with a lot of these uh, SNPs is that even if you've got a mutation, it doesn't necessarily mean that the enzyme doesn't work. And unless you have a way of measuring downstream, whether it's turned on or turned off, and unfortunately for most of these enzymes, we don't really have an easy way to measure that. It's sort of speculation. Because I know some doctors that will look at these like 23andMe tests and say, okay, well, you've got a SNP and your, your MTHFR and your COMT and your GBS, and therefore your system just doesn't work. And I think it's much more complicated than that. You know, I think we say if genes are the gun, it's the environment that pulls the trigger. So ultimately, it's the environmental impact of you know how these genes are impacted. So I think it's not fair to just look at the genes alone and make assumptions about how well they work. But, you know, as again, as we're trying to get a global assessment of the person, it may be a piece that you can fit in to say, yeah, no, there may be a disposition here in this pathway that's not functioning well. If there's a way that we can figure out if the genes turned on or off, that would be helpful. But I find more often than not, it's, it's not helpful. We don't have a way to measure it easily. 
and you're kind of speculating. But, you know, I, I think just as a general rule, you can look at how well someone processes, you know, if they've taken supplements, if they've taken medication, what was their response? And that's sort of a very crude way to figure out if the, the detox pathways are working the way they should. Mm, yeah. Oh my gosh. So much valuable info in what you just said. I, I'm so glad that you're speaking about this in terms of genetics, because I agree with you a hundred percent. And I've been saying this for years too, because people come to me with their 23andMe or like their genetic genie report. You know, there's a bunch of different websites now that they can interpret that data and they say, okay, look, I have MTHFR, help me. I'm like, okay, well, <laughs> hold on one second. What am I helping you with? Right? Because just because you have it doesn't mean it's affecting you or will affect you. And so many people say, well, I have MTHFR, so I'm taking, you know, five milligrams of folate or something crazy like that, you know, and then they're over methylating half the time. So right. it is so much more complex. Yeah. Well, I said, unfortunately, I think it's become a bit of a fad in the medical community, particularly in our world uh, with so many functional medicine doctors. It's sort of the newest thing to you know have a beautiful report and show people everything that's wrong with them. Um, again, I think it's just much more complicated. And again, I, I grew up in an era uh, of medicine where we didn't have all this genetic information to access. You know, that came after I'd already been practicing for many years. So for those of us who've been around a little bit longer, you know, we've certainly always learned to treat people uh, sometimes based on symptoms. And again, I think, you know, the genetics is useful information, but it needs to be used appropriately. And to say, yeah, I've got an MTHFR mutation. Well, you know, 60% of the population has a mu at least one copy of that mutation. So it's extremely common. Again, it doesn't always necessarily impact people in a negative way. So yes, if your homocysteine level is high, sure, treat it. You know, if you've got a disposition to clotting, Sure, treated. So, you know, there are some situations where that information is definitely helpful uh, and you're going to want to intervene at a different level. But again, to look at the SNP alone and to start, you know, giving supplements, I think that's a little misguided. Well, and I think the organic acid test could be helpful too, because if someone has MTHFR, say it's like the 677T and they're maybe homozygous for it. So, in theory, you know, it would say, okay, you're probably you know, that enzyme is downregulated, but then if their folate levels are normal and they're not necessarily taking a lot of folate, then it seems like it's working at least for now. So they don't need loads and loads of folate. The one thing I do find is the people that have the compound heterozygous, so they have one copy of the 1298 and one copy of the 6770. And those are the ones that I and again, not that I could say it's across the board, but the pattern that I've seen is with the compound heterozygous, that's where I'm seeing a little bit more of the detox issues. Those are my clients that just tend to be more sensitive, whether it's coffee, medication, anesthesia, you know, any of those things. Yeah. Like I said, I, I think it's so much more complex because again, MTHR, if you look at that metabolic pathway because of how it gets tied into all these other enzymes that are downstream from MTHFR. Uh, is it shunting things in a way that you're having difficulty with, you know, your glutathione pathways? Or is it having problems with, uh, you know, uh, histamine pathways? You know, they're all connected in a way. So it, to look at that one enzyme uh, and make a speculation, I, again, I, I think we're still in our early uh, phases of really understanding how all of these things really are connected together. And I'm sure, I'm sure we'll learn more and more about that. But again, it's, it's nice to have things where we know that it's solid intervention, that, you know, this is definitely a problem. And again, I think we're still at that stage where 
sometimes it's a problem and sometimes it's not. And I don't know that we've got the best ways always to measure that. It's an MTHFR may be the one difference because, again, we can measure homocysteine levels. We can measure your, your disposition to clotting by looking at fibrinogen and D-dimer and things like that. But some of these other enzymes, I mean, there's some things we can glean from organic acid testing to kind of get a sense about whether it's turned on or off. But uh, again, there's just so much I think we, we're still being uh, missing out on the ability to really see how that enzyme's influencing your body. Now, if someone has the ADD diagnosis and they are listening to this and they're thinking, wait a minute, that's me. I can only drink two sips of coffee and I get jittery. Or every time I take Tylenol or any medication, I just don't feel like myself. And that's telling them, okay, they may have a detox issue. What are some things that they can do to support it? Well, you know, detox uh, is a long game. You need to think of detox as a marathon, not a sprint. So I think all of these programs out there, your five-day detox, your three-day detox is, again, I think it's a bit misguided because detox is an ongoing long-term thing because there's always toxins coming into your body. It's by virtue of living on earth. You know, we, we have exposure to different toxins. So trying to do something just in the short term, uh, you might feel a little bit better, but that's not really what we're trying to accomplish. We want you being a good long-term detoxifier. So that's making sure, again, that you're eating clean, organic food, you're drinking clean water, you're getting good sleep, because that's when your body does a lot of that detoxification process, particularly your brain. You know, the more you miss of your deep restorative sleep, the harder it is for your brain to detoxify. So, I mean, it is built into our DNA to detoxify. So we don't necessarily have to give tons and tons of pills and things to facilitate that. But beyond that, for people we think need a little extra help, you know, there's a lot of different nutrients that are involved in the detox pathways. Uh, you know, we use things like, again, B vitamins, you know, vitamin B6 in particular, magnesium, vitamin B12, folate, choline, particularly phosphatidylcholine is very helpful. Uh, so, you know, I, I, there's there's just so many different things. I, I, think, I, I think it's hard to just say, okay, if you just take this group of pills or take these group of herbs, you're going to be a great detoxifier and everything's going to be great. Because again, some of this is genetic and you might just be genetically a slow detoxifier. So trying to make you a fast detoxifier by giving you pills isn't going to work. Uh, and you're going to be very disappointed. So, you know, if you try to help someone detoxify very rapidly and they're a poor detoxifier, you know, if their body starts dumping a lot of toxins and they can't get rid of it genetically, yeah, they're going to feel horrible. And they're going to be very unhappy with you. So, you know, I, again, I always think of detox being low and slow. So for me, you know, again, it's diet, it's nutrition. I think there's a lot of other therapies like, you know, sauna therapy can be extremely helpful in detoxifying a lot of different things. Colon hydrotherapy can be extremely helpful in detoxifying a lot of things. So we have a lot of things in our world that don't necessarily involve taking pills to try and get your liver necessarily to work faster. Uh, in some cases, again, that can be helpful. But, you know, you detoxify through your kidneys. So just drinking a lot of water and flushing your kidneys out can make a huge difference. Uh, but I think a lot of it is really environmental control. If we can control your exposure to different toxins, then there's less stuff to detoxify. And for those of you who've, you know, they, you grow up in a toxic environment, you may have had these environmental exposures, you know, we want to try and help mobilize them out of tissue as much as possible. You know, weight is a huge thing. We know that a lot of these toxins are stored in fat. So if you are overweight or obese, your disposition is going to be much greater than someone who has a, a lower fat mass because there's just less places to store those toxins. So, you know, 
a good exercise regimen, you know, losing that fat mass, you know, lifting weights, getting your muscle mass up. Again, all these things can be just another thing that people can do to help reduce their toxic load and start mobilizing things out of tissue. So if someone has ADD and let's say if they're not able to see a functional medicine provider and they wanted to try some things on their own, you know, I think the best thing would be for them to clean up their diet because they could do that on their own, limit their exposure, right? And then are there any general supplements that you would recommend? And I completely understand it is so individualized, but are there certain things that you feel like are overall beneficial for those people that have ADD? Yeah, again, I, I think it becomes very individualized. Uh, I, again, I don't know that there's any one thing that I give everybody. I mean, do, do most people benefit from fish oil? Most people do because they don't eat enough fish in their diet. So having a good, clean fish oil can be helpful. Sometimes even just a good multivitamin. Just make sure you're covering all the nutritional bases, and that really varies on your diet. Uh, but I find a lot of Americans, you know, they're deficient in something in their diet. And in some cases, no probiotics to help, you know, modulate your gut because, again, the gut and the brain are are very much in, uh, related to one another. And I would probably argue vitamin D, you know, just because vitamin D is an immune modulator. It is a hormone. It's not really a vitamin. Uh, and these are things that, you know, pretty much anybody can take that are safe at the right doses. You know, definitely always consult your own physician before you start taking anything to make sure it's right for you. But these are things that we use in our practice commonly and people tolerate them generally pretty well. Now, in terms of ADD medication, there are so many kids and adults that are on medication. If someone is looking to change their diet and change their lifestyle, is it something where it's possible for them to get off their medication? Have you seen that? Oh, absolutely. I've got plenty of, you know, people, kids and adults that are able to come off their medication once we really get to those root causes, get their environment and diet cleaned up. So yeah, just because, you know, you've been on medication doesn't mean you're relegated to have to stay on it for life. And sometimes, you know, we do have to wean off slowly and make sure that everything's good and stable. But yeah, I've had plenty of patients that we've been able to get off their medication. Now, you mentioned dies. And that's a big thing, especially for kids. Can you just talk a little bit about the pathway and why these dyes are so detrimental to the way that their brain functions? Well, we think that a lot of the dyes are actually allergens. And we know there's a, a Dr. Theoretes, Theo Theoretes, who's a MD, PhD allergist at Tufts University. And he's published a lot of research on how mast cells impact children's brains. And there are some kids that when they get mast cell activation, they don't get hay fever. They get neurological symptoms. So the body is probably reacting to these dyes as an allergen. It's stimulating mast cell activation of the brain, and that's what's triggering, you know, these type of neurological effects. And probably yellow number five, tartrazine, is probably the most well-researched uh, dye in terms of how it impacts behavior. And pretty much across the board, we see that it doesn't do anything good for kids. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And for everyone listening, I actually did a podcast with Dr. Beth O'Hara on mast cell activation syndrome. So if you're interested to learn more about that, you go back and listen to that episode. There's a lot of good clinical pearls in there. Now, Dr. Ingalls, we're recording this during the COVID-19 pandemic, and I know when we were talking in the pre-chat, you mentioned that you're seeing a lot more ADD now. Why is that during the pandemic? Well, I think with, you know, most people being sort of locked up in their houses, they're not, you know, out doing their normal things. I think it's a combination of a lot of people are probably not eating nearly as well as they should. Uh, I think, you know, people either went one way or another, either they you know, really took stock of their health, they started eating really clean and exercising, doing all the things they didn't have time to do before, 
or, you know, they've been kind of depressed and they're sitting at home and they're bored and, you know, food becomes a substitute for boredom and, you know, people just eating a lot of the wrong things. You know, I think exercise has such a tremendous impact on our, our mental well-being. Plus, you know, bringing more blood to the brain can definitely help with ADD. So that combination of being more sedentary, probably eating the wrong things, people's routines have just been disrupted. So their sleep patterns are sometimes disrupted and just a lot more screen time. And again, we've got pretty good evidence now that screen time and EMF exposure, you know, all these other factors can have an impact on ADD as well. So I think we're just sort of getting overloaded with all the wrong stuff and not getting enough of the good stuff to really help our brains function as well as we'd like. Dr. Ingalls, this has been so helpful. Thank you so much for being here. Now, for those that want to connect with you, where can they find you and how can they contact you? Sure. The best place to reach us is at uh, my website. It's just darreninglesnd.com. And we'd love for people to, uh, to sign up for our email list. We've got some great information on staying healthy. And uh, we've got uh, all of our social media links there as well. So we'd love for people to connect with us. As we just heard, ADD is not just a pediatric issue. It can affect both kids and adults. In order to get to the bottom of this, we needed to do some testing. And I ran an organic acid, hair, stool, a food sensitivity, and blood work for both Amanda and Logan. Amanda had issues with B6 and magnesium. Her blood test also showed a high CRP, which is C-reactive protein, an inflammatory marker. And her food sensitivity, we did the Zoomers by Vibrant America, showed a sensitivity to gluten. Her gut was actually pretty clean, but she had a lot of inflammation and she also had mercury, most likely due to past silver fillings. We worked on all of these for about six months as there was a lot here. I supplemented Amanda with B vitamins and magnesium. We removed gluten, but also because she had so much inflammation, we removed dairy and soy temporarily just to help us calm everything down. We then did the push-catch detox by Quicksilver Scientific for three months to help her detoxify, after which we added in fish oils and curcumin. It took a little work, and she was feeling slightly better as we were doing all of these things. But after six months, and when all of the cleansing was done, she felt a ton better. She was able to focus and felt sharper. Her memory improved significantly, and she no longer felt like she was spinning. We also worked on some mind-body tools to help her calm her nervous system and learn how to better prioritize, which is really key. She was thrilled. She was feeling so much better. In Logan's case, he had issues with gluten and dairy, so we removed both of those. And on his stool test, he also had a parasite called blastocystis hominis. He was used to eating a lot of processed foods that contain many artificial ingredients, including dyes. So we removed all of those and we did a gut cleanse to eliminate the blasto. We used liposomal aromnesinin from Quicksilver Scientific and also some biocytin and Alimax. All of those are available in liquids and also gels. So it's easy for kids to take and they could just mix it in a beverage or in a little bit of applesauce and it works really well. What was so cool is that we saw very quick results with Logan. In his case, he felt calmer and the teacher mentioned that he was sitting much better and completing more of his tasks after just one month. Children are so resilient and it often takes a lot less to get them balanced. Amanda was so happy about her own progress, but also how well Logan was doing. And they're going to continue to eat clean and in a balanced way to keep up the results. 
If Amanda or Logan sound like someone you know, please share this episode with them. And please be sure to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Ina Toppler, and I will see you on the next episode of Health Mystery Soft. All information, content, and material on this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified physician or healthcare provider.